0: one time i put it one time and then within hours i could see the lesion was suffering she was like drying up like (laughs) like, what is happening so i just could not believe it and then i did it again twice and that was it And oh boy here we are maybe i could bring this remedy back to canada for, for for animals and so on which i never did but yeah that was interesting I really thought, no, there's no way something else than i can 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 work on that.
1: That was Dr. Celine on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine, brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. Greetings DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this week's episode, we are talking with Dr. Celine. Now, you may have noticed I left her last name out of the intro because she is French Canadian. She has this beautiful French name, and I made the mistake of not asking her how to pronounce her name, and so I didn't want to try to butcher it. Uh, what's interesting about Celine is she is not only is she a practicing doctor, but she is also the founder of YouthBag, and having gone through end-of-life process just those last couple years. I think for most people 2020 and 2021 have been a bit of a interesting ride. For uh, me and my family it has also been rough because we lost both of our dogs that we had for uh, 15 years. So we lost the first one in, in 2020 right before WVC and then we almost a year to the date we lost our second dog. So she also runs a company called Youth Bag, and this this idea that we care so much for these dogs and we love them so much. And yet we put them in these trash bags when they're, when they're, when they're, they have left their body. And yeah, it seems a bit weird, right? On the human side of things, we have these beautiful caskets and we have this whole process and it's very respectful. And many of us, I mean, I know for myself, I mean, who would have thought, you know, five pound dogs could make me so soft, um, you know, watching them pass, but she came up with this product that essentially is a lot more I don't want to say I guess more respectful of the process of, of death, right? Rather than just discarding the body in a plastic bag. Um it is it's a lot more uh if I were to see it afterwards, like if a if we were afforded the opportunity to have a euthanasia done at home had the DVM showing up with a youth bag and placed our, our dog's bodies in those bags, I would have felt really comfortable with it just because the way they look, they feel the the nature of of the, the, you know, of the, of the product versus them showing up and then just dumping his bag in like a hefty bag or something like that. It just seems a little bit uh, weird. But um, the reason I spent so much time on that on the intro is because having just lost my other dog, it, it was kind of a little bit fresh on my mind. But what I think is also really interesting about this conversation, aside from the end of life piece, and we don't really talk that much about end of life, and I'm actually going to have Celine on another podcast, and we're going to do more end of life discussion, um, having this, bit, this process being just so fresh on my mind. But we talk a lot about it because she's now down in Costa Rica, And she talks a lot about conservation and plant medicines, which I'm really fascinated with. Um, No disrespect to Western medicine. I think it it has its place. And I think when you can combine natural therapies and what Mother Nature offers us organically combined with the power of what we can create in a lab, I think we can really accomplish some amazing things. And so we talk a little bit about what she has learned about plant medicines being down in Costa Rica and working with in communities that don't have access to veterinary medicine, but yet how they have come up with these techniques. She tells us this wonderful story about how they handle uh, cat or not cat, but horse castrations within these farms where they tie it to the tide in the moon cycle, which are kind of one in the same, right? The moon controls the tide but that it all is like very much tied in and coincides with nature. And she was really, really amazed about how effective and clean and how well the animal did. It, it's just kind of a fascinating process, especially as we live in more and more concrete jungles. Um, it is, we we very much become disconnected from nature. And I think there was a great, as a lot of, you know, I, I also love theology and spirituality and that, that whole conversation. And I think that there was a, there's an interesting scientist, uh, he's actually the mathematician at Cambridge, he's the mathematician chair, uh, Dr. John Lennox, but he always, he makes a statement that uh, only atheists lives in, live in cities, and I think what he means by that is sometimes we get so disconnected from nature living in our concrete jungles, sitting behind screens all day, that we lose the power and the magic of that, and we, so we kind of dig into the the conversation of trying to conserve that while also the power and kind of the ma- and the majesty of Mother Nature in all that it is. So it's a really great conversation. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Um, it really ties in well now. I'm hoping to get a guest on the show who's actually down in Peru and trying to help doctors with plant medicines deal with uh, compassion fatigue or heavy depression and you know, suicide thoughts and and all this stuff that comes along with that, as well as doing some uh, work within uh, helping animals down in these countries. But yeah, so I think it's just kind of an interesting conversation as, you know, the guests and people that come along and things that I'm really interested in my own life and very fascinated with plant medicines and uh, especially uh, mushrooms you know, from, like ones that you can buy over the counter, uh, not not illegal ones, but ones that you can buy over the counter. If you look at Paul Stamets' work and how he's saving bee populations with mushrooms that are non-toxic and and really helpful and, you know, the power of turkey tail in combating uh, cancer, you know, in conjunction with other conventional therapies. So yeah, just something I'm very, very interested in. So with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. All right. So, you know, as with all of these uh, podcasts, you know, I only have, well, I always say in the intro, I, have, I only have one can question, but technically it's two because the last one is always, you know, anything, is there anything you want to promote or talk about? But the first question to always get started is, is how, what was, how did you end up in vet med? Yeah, the,
0: the, the question uh yes my answer is really that candid uh answer that you know i've wanted to be a vet uh, since i was uh eight years old (laughs) i was just been obsessed with vet medicine since i was a kid uh i had this call you know and i couldn't picture myself doing anything else than that of course at some point at some point i wanted to be a a flight attendant and uh, maybe uh you know a dog trainer and things like that but yeah it was a very very strong call from vet med and i remember very well uh being in the living room at my parents and watching tv as i was doing a lot when i was little now i don't anymore but <laughs> and then i saw this documentary this tv show with um a vet attending a dog that had been hit by a car and he had a um, fracture of, uh, his jaw, his jaw was factored. Excuse my English. It's going to warm up. I'm just, in, <laughs> I'm just warming up my English. Hey, that's uh, all right. Yeah. yeah so I deal. had this, um, yeah, <laughs> it's exotic. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And then the, the poor dog was in heavy, heavy pain, acute pain, was suffering, screaming. Uh, his jaw was holding just by the skin. And then I saw this like angel guy, the veterinarian arrived. Uh, almost with escape and just attended the dog and within a couple of minutes he just changed the dog's life and then we could see the change or the evolution of the case over the weeks so the first day you know he had to do uh the the, uh, the x-rays um, and then the surgery and then this poor dog had a lot of wounds so he took care of the wound stitch and everything and then we saw the dog for the follow-up a week later then two weeks later and then they removed the screws or whatever then I could I could you know, I had my, my, my jaw, <laughs> my jaw dropped and I was just looking at it and I couldn't believe, um, you know, this job that was there where I could change animals' lives. And that was just, I, I, I've been raised with a lot of animals, pigeons. I was, I was raised in Montreal, Quebec, in the, the heart of the city, but still, um, my father had to have pigeons and chickens and we had the dog and some rabbits and, you know, had this kind of uh, background where I always had dogs in my life. So that, uh, when I saw that uh, TV show, I said, yeah, that's really what I want to do. And then I, I learned that it was hard to get into vet school and I needed to study a lot. And then I just like, that was my focus. And that's what I, I wanted to do. I was lucky to have this call, you know, that I wanted to do. I wanted to, what I, I wanted, sorry, I knew what I wanted to do.
1: So from a very young age, you then became, it helped you become focused on your educational aspect of your life at a young age, because you knew that you had to reach a certain level to be able to get into vet school.
0: Yes, yes. Although when I had so many interests, because I was raised in a family where uh we had a lot of artist friends and we were we traveled a lot since I was a at a very very young age. And I my dad had made so many different careers already. He was a pastry he was um yeah, he was a baking, uh he was a pastry guy, he was doing renovation, he'd been a salesperson, my mom also was a waitress and she was a salesperson. So I had like all these backgrounds, but I knew I had I had a lot of different interests, but I that I, I needed for sure to uh try as as hard as I could to be a vet I was also called by uh, doing documentary animal documentary I was watching a lot of those when I was little and it's funny because now my um uh my uh, my life partner also wanted to do that when he was little and we ended up together <laughs> he was a farmer and uh and I became a vet
1: Oh, that's awesome. So, you you also mentioned something there, you know, it's like you don't watch TV anymore. Why is that?
0: I'm just too busy. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I call it, I have nothing against it. I think it's a wonderful tool. I just don't have enough time now. I have uh, three small children. I just got a puppy. I started a business that I call my fourth child. And uh, there's just so much to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So for everybody, because everybody, this is all audio, so they can't tell, and and they aren't privy to our earlier conversation. But you're in Costa Rica right now. So how did you? I mean, it sounds like you might be down there for a while. So how did you? I mean, how do you end up in Costa Rica?
0: Well, that's a long story. Canada, Costa Rica. Yeah, Costa Rica. So, um, so my parents uh, immigrated from France in the seventies into Canada. Uh, during the month of February, which is the coldest and the snowiest uh, month, and then um, we were never quite able to adapt to the Canadian winter, so we always escaped for a couple of weeks since I since my parents moved there and I was born in Canada, made in France, born in Canada, and uh, so all the time we were going to Florida or Dominican Republic and so on. And then at my, my parents were, were very. Uh, a little bit um bohemians on the side and then every uh so often they would you know plan a trip uh, for example we they they drove down from Montreal to Mexico in a Chevy van in the 80s and then we were driving down to Florida anyways at one point they're like man let's go down to Costa Rica in a pickup truck that will uh that we could uh you know sleep into and then they drove down to Costa Rica fell in love with the country because uh it's a very peaceful country people are very friendly there's no army no political problems as in many other Latin countries so they bought a property and since 25 years ago and since i have been coming down every winter and then when I started vet med practicing in vet med I finally chose a small animal medicine I wanted to do a I was hoping to do a difference and be able to work in um conservation or zoo medicine, but uh, real quick from my sh- short experience, I was just noticing that uh, there was, that government weren't listening to scientists, that uh, university basements were full of studies showing how to preserve this um, frog or this uh, raptor bird, whatever, but then they weren't listening. So that I felt that was very discouraging. So I did a couple of studies here and there, turtle conservation, frog conservation, I got discouraged. And then I said, I thought, what about I would buy a piece of land in Costa Rica and turn it into a habitat and reforest and just help these little monkeys that just have no place to go. And they're about to go and stink talking about the squirrel monkeys in Costa Rica. So, and then I thought, then I could really feel what I, that the impact of impact of what I'm doing. And so that's what we did. We bought 20 hectares in Costa Rica and planted uh, 15,000 trees. All uh, endemic species that are important for the wildlife, and it's been 15 years now, and uh, and we're seeing the impact of it. We're seeing these birds coming back because it was an old pasture, old abandoned farm, and now we're seeing the squirrel monkeys. I got they woke me up this morning. All our monkeys, and yeah, so that's how I ended up coming to Costa Rica from not being quite adapted to our our. Uh, <laughs> our new country as a family plus I uh, wanted to do something for the environment that I could really feel the impact.
1: So Thanks. you had talked about this idea of you know driving to another country where you know there's there's not a lot of like war or impact you know it, it's a little bit safer I guess from a uh, a foreigner's perspective but what was it like driving through Mexico. I mean, especially because you hear about the horror stories of northern Mexico. And, um, you know, ironically, I have some friends that are from uh, Chihuahua, which is like a a northern state in Mexico. And we've always joked that like, they're like, yeah, you should come down sometime. If you come with us, it'll totally be fine. You know, it, it won't be a problem. But they're like, but as soon as you show up... in the the town that we live in, there's going to be a lot of questions that are going to be asked. Like, why is this gringo here? What is he doing here? Why is he with you? What's his real intent? And it's interesting to like, and how like the, these gangs kind of control these little towns, you know, and I just thought it was super fascinating. Like, yeah, you'd be fine, but we would have to literally, we would have to explain why you came with us, you know? And, and they would be watching us the whole time. And that's like the fact that they know that, right. And that they're kind of like, yeah, whatever. That's just the way it is. Makes it real interesting. So, I mean, when you were younger and you're, I mean, I guess if you're younger and you're driving in the back of a pickup truck, you probably don't even think about it, but like were your parents concerned about that at all? I mean, (laughs) did you see anything like that?
0: No, no. My parents were, were always very, uh, very posi- positive uh, people slash unconscious, and uh, so they were just, um, you know, trusting life. And um, personally, uh, I didn't feel like before dark. I didn't feel any danger in Mexico. That was twenty over twenty years ago. Uh, the last time I drove down from Montreal, uh, at night you feel something is different, but during the day I feel that you, know, you just see that like in the rest of the world most people are extremely good extremely uh nice to us as foreigners and so on uh you know i was just afraid of the police basically <laughs> that's, that's where i got problems with, with police stealing my passport and then calling the next police station and letting them know and then threatening us and that wasn't fun um but again all they want is there is your money because they're like they're not paid they're totally underpaid so that's that's how i felt it and then i felt Yeah, so we just decided not to drive at night, stop our journey at four o'clock in the afternoon and had very good experience with Mexican people. And again, it it really depends on where you are in Mexico, such a large country uh, that you have to pick the states you're crossing at. And then I I watch documentaries. See, I watch TV sometimes on the weekends. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's like awake meditation. I love it to change my mind from the business and so on. But then, yeah, and then I watched that documentary on the narco traffickers and all the murders they're doing. And then I got really scared. I'm like, Oh my God, I couldn't see that. You know, I, I couldn't see it then w- when I didn't know that was happening at the time, uh, cause it was still, it was already happening, but yeah, during the day, <laughs> it was fine. So
1: <laughs> you mentioned I mean, you, you mentioned this little nugget of a story that you had your passport stolen and that. So what, what was that? When, how did that happen?
0: Actually, I said, I said my passport, but it was my visa. Yeah. When you, at the time, when you were getting into Mexico, you had to get a tourist visa that they give to everybody crossing the border. But then it's that little piece of yellow paper that you need to have. If you lose your tourist visa in Mexico, it's the end of the world. So I kept it very preciously in my passport and there was three of us traveling. And then somehow there was a police control and they grabbed their passports, and then they looked at our visa, and then they gave me everything back, and I didn't look to make sure because I was trusting the police. I'm from Canada. (laughs) And uh, Later, we got stopped again, maybe, I don't know, 30 kilometers down the road, and they're like, your visa, your passport, okay, here it is, take it. And they're like, yeah, you don't have your visa. Yeah, yeah, it's right there. And couldn't find the visa, so it was obvious that the police had taken it. And then they called their friend out. So yeah, so and it's and then that's. So I what do they? I mean, were they basically did, did, like give us one hundred dollars? It's very common.
1: Or? I mean, so yeah. were they like oh, give yeah. us one hundred dollars? Uh, four hundred
0: bucks. Yeah, four hundred bucks right now. Of course, they wait till it's dark. Uh, you know, it's just getting dark, and then you are getting a little more insecure. And then they say, "Yeah, give us five hundred dollars. Otherwise, uh, we're going to um, send you home, and you are going to have to pay the plane ticket. And this is the end of it. And we'll you'll have to leave the car here." So they threaten you with s- stupid things, and then you get scared. And then uh, you deal and then you're like, no, I don't have $500. I just have $100. And that line la, la, goes on for hours. And then you just give them their money and continue the journey. And then I don't know if they gave me some kind of temporary, temporary visa or they give it back to me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. But yeah, yeah, they're like, oh,
1: oh, like you didn't lose it. They're like, here oh, it is. <laughs> oh, here it is.
0: I found it on the road. You just dropped it. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. But it, I, I heard that from other people that it's very common. Strategy. So just just watch the Mexican police. And again, you know, then when you learn more of them, it's hard to blame them. You know, they earn like something ridiculous, like $50 a month. So they just have to find some kind of an income.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So now shifting the conversation to Costa Rica, I've heard stories that I've had a, a couple of friends that have gone there, down there, and they basically say that like there's only. Like there's like a couple of these rental car agencies. They all rent out like the same little like Suzuki Samurai style Jeep or whatever. And they even tell you when you rent the car, like do not leave anything in the car. Right. And so I had a friend that went down there and he was like, yeah, they told us, you know, he's like, don't leave anything in the car, but we pulled up to this beach. My God, we're just going to walk five seconds down. You know, we're just, we're not actually going to stay here. We're just going to take a quick look and come back. And in the time that they got to the beach and back, their little rental car had been broken into their wallets, their passports, everything was stolen.
0: Yes, that happens uh, in Costa Rica like any other touristic place. I don't think it's anymore, uh, except maybe in Asia. But yeah, it's very common here because those rentals, it's so obvious they're rentals and so obvious people go to the beach and leave their they're belonging in there uh, yeah i've never I've never had that happen here, but I've had it happen in a in a bus actually I took a bus that was in my early career Um I didn't have much money, so I decided to go and um help at the Spain neuter clinic uh six hour bus no eight hour bus drive from where I was I went back to San Jose by bus and helped at that uh spay and neuter campaign in a slummy area around uh, San Jose and had a blast and then met some great vets out there, amazing vets from Costa Rica. And then I had the choice to fly back down home for like $80 or take a bus for $10 and say, well, I'll just take the bus, you know, and <laughs> took the bus and I fell asleep. I was very tired. These uh, spay and neuter are very tiring. We spay something like 30 to 40 patients a day per vet. And in a clinic, you usually do wow. five to 10, you know, it's very, very intense. And then I just fell asleep and got home and I had no more money left. They, he just, you know, fell asleep and they just opened my bag and got only the money though. They. Didn't take my passport. They were kind of nice people
1: actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for only robbing yeah. parts of yeah. parts of the oh, they
0: didn't have connection to sell a Canadian passport that is worth a lot of money down here. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I mean Yeah, it's quite a classic to get uh, stolen in Latin America. But I wouldn't say it's worse than in other Latin America countries.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, true. Right. I mean, you can, you can run into that anywhere, you know, I, like I love uh, the country of Thailand and it's like, you have to, after you go the first time you learn like who's the hustler and who isn't right. Like, cause most of the Thai people like culturally are very kind of quiet and reserved, and you have to approach them to talk to them. So if the guy is coming up to you yeah, yeah. and talking <laughs> to you, you know, mm-hmm. that yeah, he's a hu- yeah, he's a hustler and he he's trying to sell you something and you know right away. nope, I don't want nothing to do with you. And I remember there's one story where my wife and I were uh, this guy. was We were it was our first time there. And then I was starting to catch on to like the scams. And like we get in one of those little tuk-tuks. He's like, oh, you know, where are you guys going? We're like, oh, we're just trying. We're going to go try to find something to eat. And he's like, oh, I know a great place. And we get in this like tuk tuk and we we start driving. We're like, where the hell are we going? And then he takes us back to this like little like back alley restaurant that must have been his friends. And we're like, it was just like a weird situation. And luckily I was like, no, dude, we're out. Like, either take us back and you're or you're not getting paid, or we're like, or we're just gonna walk away. And luckily enough, he was like, Okay, cool, you know, like, whoa, you know, he was like, No, no, stay, stay, stay. And I was like, No. Right, but we could tell like once we got back there, like there was nobody else there, there was nobody else around, like we were about to get taken for a ride, and so yeah, but once you figured out that out, then it it wasn't so bad and you kinda just you know, you know how to deal with it. But yeah, yeah, it could have
0: been the opposite. You could have gotten to his family, would have had a wonderful meal and it didn't cost him much, you know. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. It's the fun of traveling.
1: Which is a unique story because when we went back the second time we actually got married there and (laughs) Our our friends actually met this guy, a neck who is like a a jewelry dealer. And he was like the nicest guy in the world. Like when we land in Bangkok, he picks us up and he gives us two cell phones and he's like here. So you guys can communicate. And we're like, okay, this is crazy. And he takes us to the hotel and he's like, all right, I'm going to pick you guys up a little bit later. Picks us up later, takes us to a show, takes us to like this amazing restaurant. I mean, basically we had a personal tour guide like for the whole like four days we are in bangkok and then we're leaving and we're like dude like like we're like okay he's gonna ask us for like a thousand bucks or whatever for the last three days (laughs) or service and we're like well okay well we're flying to chiang mai now um you know do you want your cell phones back and he's like no keep the cell phones my niece lives up there you can just give them to her when you're done with them and we're like, okay. And he's like, I'll even have my 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 chauffeur pick you up and take you to the airport so you don't have to worry about getting a cab and everything. Sure enough, like we got a ride to the airport and then we met his like we used the kept using the cell phones in uh, Chiang Mai for three days and then gave them to his his niece and it was like all good and he just wanted to show us a great time in his country. It was like the most amazing thing. It was so weird because at one aspect, you're like there's something isn't right here. People aren't this nice. You know what I mean? Especially some of <laughs> you don't know. But yeah. then on the other hand, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I've
0: had that happen. I've had both.
1: Yeah. So what is, what would you say? I mean, so you're obviously down in Costa Rica, like working on, you know, you have the kind of this comfort conservation project going. You also have youth, youth bag. And then you're also, I think you said you, that you're practicing like, part-time still right when you're back in canada
0: yeah when i'm back in canada here in costa rica i don't practice at all anymore i used to because there was no vets here around at all so when i was coming down for three months i i had to go to the craziest craziest places to take care of some animals mostly dogs and cats because there was nobody so it's incredible here people have managed to take care of their pets over decades just on their own you know with uh plants from around here they even they even uh neuter males uh themselves the people here uh they take, they take their cats or they used to do it they don't do it so much anymore but they, yeah they would just put the the cat head first in a rubber boot and grab his uh, legs and grab the testicles and open the scrotum up with a, just a knife and i it's just incredible they've been able to do that i've never watched that Uh, but I did watch a, um, horse castration in the field and I was so impressed and that brings me, yeah, they were just, uh, without anesthesia, they find a way to attach the horse's legs and make him fall. And yes, the animal felt something, but it's just so quick. They are so quick. Like this castration was done within two minutes.
1: And what about but what about the healing process?
0: Yeah, exactly. What and then uh, you know he was dripping a bit of blood after the surgery. So basically, they tie him up, manage to make him fall on his side. Like it's not nothing; it's quite an art, right? And then they are able to do some kind of contention, and then the guy gets there with his knife. And I am like, oh, you must have sharpened your knife a lot, you know, to make sure that it's. It cuts. He's like, no, you don't sharpen it so much. You just oh, you just want it to cut. But then when I'm gonna, you know, cut that blood vessel that is major, it's just as big as a finger, you know, that with with the the what brings the blood supply to the testicle. <laughs> He's like, you don't want it to be too sharp. You just want it to like, you know, uh, s- uh, scratch it a bit and pull at the same time and twist. So like bring some hemostasis and and then that's how they do it. It's like hemostasis by stretching and torsion. And, and it's just amazing. I'm like, oh my God, you know, what's going to happen to this poor horse? But, and, but I just went there just to watch. But actually the poor horse, I can't say that he had, I mean, yes, he had two minutes where uh Basically, he felt when they were uh, cutting skin, but afterwards, for some reason, they did it so quick, he didn't have time to realize what was happening. And then he got up, and I'm like, okay, they warmed us so much at vet school that, you know, a horse could bleed after castration. I was very worried. But then he just got up after surgery, and then he's like, okay, what happened? For about three minutes. He was dripping a little bit of blood, a sec, one drop a second, which is what you would expect with our techniques too. And then just starting grazing right after. And he was fine. Really? He healed beautifully. Yeah. And then they even thought of giving a tetanus shot. They gave a tetanus shot before, uh, like a month before, uh, they give a test- tetanus shot, even at the booster, uh, a couple of weeks later. And then they did the surgery. And then also what's interesting, they considered the uh, moon phase. So they're like, no, we can't do it that moon, full moon, or, um, uh, we have to do it when the moon, uh, go, uh, is, uh, weaning down. And then also they had to take in account the, the tides. Like we have to do it low tide, moon's going down. And they were all, all having all these things. I'm like, okay, I don't know if it, it's true or if it's, you know, what's, what it's worth really, but the outcome was the horse was fine and he healed beautifully and he was, Eating his grass within, you know, thirty minutes after they started the procedure.
1: You know, it's interesting, you know, we talk about these things like, you know, moon phases and and the tide, and you know, does it really have an impact on the surgery? From a Western scientific standpoint, we might say no, right? But I think it's unique from a cultural perspective of really being tied in to your surroundings, right? Like really being tied into the way the the state of nature the way you're interacting with the earth and how things have i don't know it just seems like you're far more in tune um and when i think you know what is what is el- what else is interesting is you know like i mean we even joke like oh it must be a full moon because people are going crazy so it's like instinctually we have these like thoughts that you know, the moon phases have an impact on our life. And you look at like Stonehenge and all these things where, you know, they're timing the phase, you know, uh, the winter and summer solstice. So I think it's really amazing that they're still really tied into, I mean, whether it has an impact or not, I don't know. But I think to be tied into the earth like that is actually pretty amazing.
0: And tied into, they have to find a way to fix that horse. Otherwise, you know, they, they are, so they have to find solutions on their own. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for that because they had no vets that were available to help them and they find ways. And then if there's something wrong with this forest, they're going to be stuck with the consequences as well. So I, th- I find that's very courageous. <laughs> People in our culture or countries don't can't, can't handle that much stress anymore. And then, But also it's funny because when we were planting, cutting trees and so on, I actually have been able to see the impact of the tide and the moon on how much sap was coming out when i was cutting really? a banana yeah a banana tree which is not a tree but the banana bunch um and if it's if the tide is uh if, if we're high tide there's going to be much more sap coming out than if it's low tide kind of thing and again you you wonder if you're biased or what but i kind of thought there was it makes sense and also uh when they're planting here they also take that in account a lot if they're uh, going to yeah going to try to um propagate some plants they cut uh a stick they, they cut a branch and then cut in different little sticks and then they're always uh planting that after full moon and it kind of makes sense you look as well you look at the forest and the the moon has an impact on uh how the leaves are growing you see that right after right before full moon uh a lot of trees make their new leaves so anyways it's in, it's interesting and i yeah, it's just nice to see that they're so connected, as you say, very connected to, uh, nature as they didn't have choice. And also they, they still use a lot of, um, natural remedies from plants to take care of their health and their pets' health. And with some success, not perfect, but I've seen some very successful thing. I got to share that with you. <laughs> Once I finally, I was so excited because after taking care of so many dogs in a Spain Nutri-Campaign and here and there, I got my first ringworm. I got a lesion of ringworm on myself. Like after, I don't know, 10 years <laughs> in practice, I like, ah, I finally got the ringworm, you know? <laughs> and then I had this lesion on my leg and it was, getting, it was growing pretty fast. It was getting very, um, it was inflamed and it was uh, itchy and so on. And this friend tells me, oh yeah, uh, just grab this plant. It's called, um, how is it called again? Uh, Saragundi. And yeah, you just grab some new leaves and get the sap out and put it on your on on the bobo there and you see it's gonna it's working. It's amazing. I'm like yeah, yeah. yeah. Like ringworm is the hardest thing to get rid of, buddy, you know, like it takes weeks of antifungals. Sometimes you have to take it orally and your liver suffers la la la. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going to try it just for fun. Man. <laughs> one time I put it one time and then within hours I could see the lesion was suffering she was like drying up it's like, <laughs> like what is happening so I just could not believe it and then I did it again twice and that was it and I, oh boy here we are maybe I could bring this remedy back to Canada for for, for animals and so on which I never did but yeah that was interesting I really thought, no, there's no way something else than iTraconazole can function, can work on that. You know, that's, that's all there is that it's working. It's not even working for all of the dogs and cats that I've seen in practice on. Yeah. So interesting. A lot of, uh, you know, a a lot of things to look at uh, as research goes. I'm sure we could find a lot of remedies here in nature.
1: Yeah. What's amazing about that is, uh, it's just, you know, it's one of those N of ones that just kind of reinforces my own personal bias. So like in my signature line, anybody that's ever emailed me, you know, like my signature line is no, peace, peace, love and plants. And so, I mean, there's two pieces of that. A, I didn't come up with that originally. I would love to say that that was me, but it's really uh this guy, Rich Roll, that I'm a huge fan of. That's always his like sign off and he's always like peace, love and plants. And so, A, it's just to kind of pay homage to Rich Roll. But the, the second piece of that is that, you know, I have always heavily believed in the power of plants, whether it's in my own personal diet, um, you know, trying to consume more plants and becoming more plant based in my own diet and just seeing the effects that it has had on me. And like with uh, our we had our uh, we lost one of our dogs about a year ago, but he had TCC and uh, prostate cancer pretty bad. And we had worked with Dr. Kasara Andre, who's a good friend of mine, and she runs uh, veterinarycannabis.org. So she's uh, kind of a cannabis specialist. And what is interesting is, is that we weren't, when we were, when we were making a a, uh, kind of a formula to help treat cash, we weren't looking at just like, okay, we're going to use this much CBD oil and, you know, this much THC we were actually blending in back back in the terpenes, which are part of the actual plant compound. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is, I think, about this whole plant conversation is that uh, Dr. Hazza who is, um, she's like a cannabis specialist within cancer. She has found that there are certain, you know, of these terpenes or these phytochemicals within the plants that help to modulate the endocannabinoid system stronger or better or make it work more effectively especially in certain use cases and i you know having a dog that basically he stopped walking you know um he was having a heart he he just really wasn't being a dog that much anymore because every time he went outside he was just trying to squeeze this mass out of his bladder you know just Mm -hmm. constantly squeezing but once we got him on this therapy i tell you what his life like turned around i mean for the next nine months or so before his kidney shut down um he was walking again you know his like his life kind of came back and i think it's just again a testament to to see that like yes we know that there's see i mean and this is just cannabis so i mean with any plant right like and in your case it probably wasn't just one chemical within that plant that was you know helping to fix this ringworm issue it was a combination of all the amazing phyto you know the what are they called? The phytochemicals within these plants working together synergistically with your body to heal you. I think it's just plants are amazing, and I've got also gotten really fascinated with um, mushrooms and like lion's mane <laughs> and cordyceps and just like
0: I was holding myself to start again, yeah <laughs> so I start I mean, talking about it yeah raishi and so on yeah I found yes. some reishi here in a uh, in the river I was just walking in the river in Costa Rica and just turn a corner I'm like <gasps> they're like <laughs> 500 grams of rice growing on the, on the, on the, on the tree that had fallen. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. But, and then, uh, you know, I find that, um, I've always been naturally, uh, attracted by, um, phytotherapy and, and plants and botanical sciences and so on. But then, you know, that's, that's naturally. And then I just wanted to learn, um, conventional medicine because i think it's so interesting to be able to combine both right but i just lately maybe five ten years ago i realized why that was working why it made sense i don't know if you had this uh awakening i would call it it's just because these uh plants fight disease all the time like this plant that i grabbed on the side of the river for my ringworm She's fighting fungus all the time and she's been fighting it for a hundred thousands of years. And then just the best ones have survived because they came up with this new solution. But because for the, for many years, I was just, I thought it could be working because I thought it could be working. It's just something natural I had in myself, but then a um, natural belief, I mean. But then after a while, I'm like, yeah, potatoes, they live in the ground and they have to fight insects all the time. And some of the most potent medication we use in vet med, such as ivermectin and so on has been ext- extracted from the soil from plants that are fighting against insects and it's just like it's i find that it took me a while to understand that yeah, to share this with yeah. You. but no, just, they, definitely, fight, yeah. they fight funguses they fight tumors as well they fight insects and that's why we can we can work with them they can help and not saying that they cure everything but they can they can definitely uh complement our occidental approach.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, again, I'm not trying to, in any way to try to di- demonize um, conventional medicine or Western medicine or whatever you want to call no. it. And it seems you know, it just seems that like when you need like a, the only way I can think of it is, you know, is like a lot of holistic therapies seem to be kind of a gentler, more long-term approach, right? Like you have to stay very consistent with it mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. um, and and then it will have a greater impact. Um, I mean, like, again, I'm bringing this up just because, you know, like, look at Tom Brady, right? Like everybody, like, I'm not sure if you follow American football or not, but Tom Brady is a a quarterback and he plays for, he now plays for the, um, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The thing about him is, is he's 43 years old, right? So to be 43 years old and playing a professional sport, especially football is just unheard of, right? And he just won another championship over the weekend But where I'm going with this is when it comes back to plants is, you know, on social media, after he won his seventh Super everybody everybody's like talking about this transformation of him from when he was younger to now that he's older, like he actually almost looks younger now that he's older. Like it's weird. Like when he was younger, he doesn't look as good as he does now. And he's, you know, he's 20 years older. And I think that's a testament again, back to like, you know, he's i think he's partially he's like 80 percent. i mean he th- i think he consumes fish i think he's pescatarian but he said you know when he when they interviewed his dietitian and stuff they basically like yeah 80 percent of his diet we try to get from whole plants and whole foods and so i think if you look at somebody like that who has slowly changed over time and made this big impact like look at the impact it can have like he, that again it's n of one right it's an n of one but um where conventional medicine, I think, is like you know with cash, like we also gave him chemotherapy, right, but it was like the sledgehammer, right we get, we got in there and we were just trying to knock knock as much of this cancer off as we could, and then using other modalities to hopefully slowly slow it down and give him a better quality of life so yeah, I think it's I think there's a place for everything and trying to yeah, work, use it I use it all together page.
0: yeah, yeah, it's just no matter what works, we just need this pet to feel better, this person to be better, and if it's conventional. Is working 100% fine. I don't I'm just so committed to try to find solutions for the the pet and the pet owner that yeah, no matter if it's if I've tried everything conventional and he's still throwing up, I'm gonna try homeopathy. I don't care, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever. We yeah. just gotta find a solution. Yeah.
1: So we were talking about mushrooms. I mean, have you have you ever used mushrooms in your own therapies, so like with pets, or? I mean, uh, to-
0: magic mushrooms, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh,
1: <yes. laughs> that's a whole other, uh, con- that's a whole yeah. other topic.
0: <laughs> that's uh, another experience, another traveling. Uh, yes, um, I did, but I've never been again. I've never found a person or even myself that was consistent enough uh, that I was able to do a such a good follow up that it could. Be beneficial uh and often also when we uh, get to use these uh, modalities in vetments sometimes they're very extreme cases or it's too late people that come mm-hmm. and come to me because they've heard that i use natural products and they come just too late and i haven't been able to uh so i use it as a prevention for myself and make little cures of um of medicinal mushrooms here and there but uh, just like a month, you know, I, I I take some here and there during a month when the sea when we uh, change when there's a season change uh, transition. But no, I've never.
1: So explain had, that
0: like a success story. <laughs> uh, explain what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I get the, back in Canada. We have a mushroom that is called turkey's tail.
1: Yep, I'm familiar. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Tremat taste versicolor uh, yes yeah. yeah, so uh, I've got so many of them in my in on my property that I just make a tea out of it and um, actually it's very surprising how good it tastes did you ever try it
1: uh, no I've only had it like I've only used it in like dry dry form yeah,
0: yeah. oh yeah no um, maybe we'll end up uh, sending you some
1: <laughs> yeah that would be awesome you know,
0: so you yeah. can try no uh, actually yeah. Just the whole just the whole mushroom I put in water and I let it simmer on the fire stove for hours and hours, and I just add water and then it simmers it has to simmer a long time at low temperature and then I just drink it as a tea and I don't know exactly how much I should take, and I don't know how much I'm taking I'm just taking it and just I've been very surprised by the amazing taste of it. It tastes like maple syrup, really it doesn't taste like mushroom, yeah, I love mushrooms, but yeah, yeah. when I do this decoction of uh trematis or uh sorry of uh, turkey's tail yeah it tastes amazing so i will let's say uh, we're getting into the into fall or into winter then i'll just go Oop, maybe we should make a little tea out of this to boost you know our our immune system that's 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 all i do yeah yeah so i got very interested into it when my father was sick with uh, colon cancer and of course it was stage four when we found out about it, it was too late so i've tried all these things but you know he was yeah. uh it was too late for him and the funny thing though is he, he's always trusted very much in veterinarians and not so he had bad experiences <laughs> uh since his young age with human doctors for some reason and uh so i'm like dad i found you some uh, some supplements for dogs you know for cancer and also for that digestion and i found some expired jars of those really amazing um supplements that there are there for cancer with some, some uh, medicinal mushrooms and, uh, with, uh, birch, uh, extracts and terpenes and arabinol. Oh, sorry. I don't know to say it in English, but yeah. Anyways. And then it was, it was obvious that it was for, uh, for, Dogs and then the techs at the clinic were like, but your father's going to take it. It's, I mean, it's a veterinary product. And he's like, Oh, yes. Yeah, so he's going to take that much more <laughs> easily than if it was from the doctor. And one of the uh, enzymes I brought home had a dog on it, had the border collie on the, you know, they're like, i remove <laughs> that part. Otherwise your father's going to wonder. And I'm like, No, no, no. If there's a dog on it, he'll take it because it was really hard <laughs> to get him to take medication or something. He took it, and he says, "Oh my God, my digestion's never been as good as right now." <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: it's, it's, it's
0: blend blender, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know that's that's interesting. Uh, Paul Stamets, who is uh, he's a professor, he's a mycologist, and he's a professor up at a, a university up in Washington. I don't remember the university, but he, um, his mom got breast cancer, and so he used a lot of turkey tail and I think reishi mushrooms in like high doses with her in conjunction with her chemotherapy. And I think, um, I mean, I don't know. It's been a number of years since I've heard, heard him talk about it, but I mean, I think she's still alive today. Yeah. And so, and they've talked, he's talked a lot. And so he's done a lot of research around the area of the power of turkey tail and, um, in cancer. Now again, I'm not saying it, it's going to cure cancer. Yeah, no. here, I'm just saying but yeah, I, <laughs> but, no. Yeah, no, I think no, it no. can be another, you know, there's a lot of things that are really powerful that can help. And what's also interesting with mushrooms is he's now found this mushroom that um grows on the barks of trees and bees will fly into the into this mushroom and they like rub in the the sap of, or like the or like the moisture of this mushroom. And what he found was is that Bees naturally will go to this mushroom because it helps them with that um, that virus that bees are getting that are shortening their wings and shortening their lifespan. So now he has actually created a spray from this mushroom that people can use to spray hives to help protect the bees from this virus because it actually helps... Huh. Shed, helps them shed this virus. It's completely non-toxic. It's completely safe to the bees. So he has this whole like project to help save the bees, and he's got a whole bunch of other things that he's doing as well. But yeah, really fascinating, and, and all with mushrooms, it's amazing.
0: Wow. Well. Yeah, and I, actually in Japan they are using it like in conventional hospital they combine chemo with medicinal mushrooms. That's interesting. Anyway. Oh, they do. Yeah.
1: I did not know yeah. that. So, what which yeah. ones are they using?
0: Uh, well, there's uh, the shiitake. I don't know exact. I don't know what the protocols are. I just think, I just know, or I've just read that it was just part of the conventional uh, protocols now to include some medicinal mushrooms.
1: So, would you say that be, like being down in Costa Rica and kind of surrounded by the, the jungle, I mean, I don't know if that's the right term for it, or the rainforest, I mean... Has that kind of opened your eyes to the idea of working more with plants and incorporating them more into your lifestyle, or has has that always been important to you?
0: It's always been. It's always been. And also, I, w- I was uh, raised with a lot of animals around me, but also my father had built a integrated greenhouse right to into our house that we could uh, where he was growing uh, tropical plants and so on. So I've always been into that naturally.
1: So, okay. So then here's the million dollar question. Are you, do you, um, are you vegetarian or, or, <laughs> or, or vegan or no?
0: Yeah. Should that be vegetarian or not? Uh, no, I'm a flexitarian. Actually, <laughs> okay. I just eat meat that, that I know. Yeah. that I know where it's from. You know, uh, I do exceptions, but I try to eat uh, meat that I've, um, yeah, that I've had good lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's, well, uh, and I've
0: been able to do that living on a farm for the last, uh, eight years. We've been able to, uh, to raise, uh, pigs and, and, uh, sheep and chickens and so on. And it's always hard to send them, uh, for slaughter. It will always been. It's, it's normal. It's that way. But when I have the feeling I've given them a nice life, although it's shorter than it could have been, and maybe not, because in the wild, they might have not made it to that age either. Uh, I'm okay with it. And I think. As a, yeah, I think that's where we should go. <laughs> and, uh, but I do understand vegetarians, uh, and I respect them, and I think there should be more and more of them. Yeah. And yeah, uh, I've always saw... been.
1: Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I've always been surprised no, that there a,
0: are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry. I think there's a You've bit of a surprise. Are Colorado. there? Uh, no, you,
0: you, you have, you have to finish this, uh, this idea.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I was just saying, I, I think it's crazy that there aren't more uh, vegetarians in, in vet med. I'm just surprised that there aren't more because, you know, like you talked about this idea earlier that when you were younger, you have always had this sense and this love for animals as you were younger and you knew that it was something you want to do it in watching this animal, like, you know, its jaw basically hanging off by a thread, but being able to save it and bringing it back. Um, yeah, I've always just been amazed by it. I mean, like it does to me. Your diet is your diet, right? So I'm not trying to, uh, to proselytize to anybody on how you should eat, but I've just always found it fascinating that there aren't more vegetarians in the, in the, uh, veterinary space.
0: Yeah. But now I've seen a big shift in the last 20 years. I do work with veterinary students now a lot. And, uh, there's a, there was no veterinarian in my class in vet school. And now I would say there's at least, uh, 20%. Of them, minimum in every class. It's a big change. I mean, uh, and I think it might be because vets are very focused on fixing the problem now. Like this animal has a problem now, and I need to fix him. And that's my that's my uh, motivation. Not so much at looking at it as uh, the big picture. And I was surprised lately. Actually, I talked with a friend that is a she's been in the vet industry as long as I do, twenty years, and uh, I was surprised that. She didn't really pay attention that much to how the, um, livestock was raised. Like she thought they were all grazing in a pasture, happy, you know, wagging their tail, get the, to get the flies off. I'm like, no, this Canadian beef is from a feedlot. Have you ever seen pictures of a feedlot? What are their life conditions? She's so into, uh, animal well-being and so on for small animals, but she just never thought of it. It is strange, and we also had this conversation with some other friends yesterday. I'm like, if everybody would have to slaughter one animal before he eats it, that would change a lot how this is working right now. I ha- I did it personally. I wanted to know what it was like, so I would make a responsible choice when I was eating meat, and it was really hard. Also, at our vet school we had to visit a slaughterhouse. It was part of our curriculum. We couldn't graduate from vet school without going. And I went to this uh, dairy uh, dairy cow slaughterhouse where I think they were killing 3,000 a day, something crazy like that. And yes. uh, it was very shocking. And it took me a while to recover from that. I got back to eating meat, but that's part of why now I want to know where they're from and make sure that they were treated respectfully otherwise i'll eat lentils <laughs>
1: <Listen>. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah you know what's you know what's uh really i think really hits home about that story is uh there's a well there's a couple of things that come to mind when you when you talk about that story and i guess the one that relates more back to, to the veterinary industry is when again when my da- my dog had got cancer we were we were looking at you know how can we help approach this from a nutritional standpoint as well right so how can we hit this from every angle and uh mm-hmm. there's a there's a, a nutritionist. I have his book. I think his name is Dr. Pit Karen, I think, but he yes. gave like oh, a, yes. yeah. And I he know, gave yeah. this, Oh, you do?
0: Not personally, but I know his oh, books. Okay. Yeah. They were, he was really one of the first one out there to talk about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so he, and uh yeah, so we, so our GP had recommended his book. So we had gotten his book and then, um and then, and then ironically I had looked him up and he was doing this online seminar. And so, I just was watching, um, this was a couple of years ago and I was watching it and he was giving this presentation. And I think what makes me think of this story is because you talk about the idea of like, yeah, well, like the meat that I'm consuming, I know where it came from. Right. And then you talk about this idea and this concept of feedlots. And he talked about that. And he was like, do you realize that the chicken breast that we're feeding our animals is like these chickens that come from these feedlots have these massive tumors and basically cancer on the breast. They cut the cancer off. The breast that is remaining goes to human consumption, and that tumor is then the chicken meat that is then put in your dog food. And he's like, and I, and so again, this is completely un, unscientific. But you know, I start thinking about that, and I'm like, you have animals that are living under constant stress. You're then your your animal or us. You know, we're eating something that's constantly under stress and like we don't think that that's going to have an impact on our diet and how you know our overall well-being it just doesn't seem to make sense again it's just completely my opinion and there's no there's really no i don't have any science to back it up but it just doesn't seem to make sense right like where if you have an animal that is like like in your like you're talking about like you know a, a chicken that's grazing in a you know, in an open cage, in an open environment, and living a relatively stress-free life. I think just from a quality standpoint, the quality of that meat product at the end of the day is vastly is vastly different.
0: And you can taste it. You can just see it visually. You can taste it. Um, yeah, and again, you know, it's, it's just a, a matter of uh, being core and, uh, coherent. I'm not sure you can say that, but I mean, uh, what I've seen is, for example, what's shocking me. I have a pet owner that brings his pet uh, to get his nail trimmed, and they're all like freaking because he's going. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing like a protection reaction, and they think he's <laughs> yeah. he's in pain. Well, he's stressed and so on. But I mean, it's yeah, it's it's too bad. But it's like when I cut my my kids' nails, you know, they scream too, and it, they forget about it five minutes later. But I'm like, oh, they're making such a big deal out of this. I'm like, and what about the chicken you just ate? Like, they don't care about <laughs> the, the yes. food they eat. You know, they care so much. They're so focused on their baby dog. But then the beef, you know, that they eat and so on, they don't really want to know. And they're like, oh, I don't want to know. You know, it's too complicated. I'm like, what? And then when I would tell them, yeah, I raise my pigs and, you know, like, oh, how can you eat them if you know them? Well, <laughs> you know what? They're it's, they're not nicer because I know them. All cows are nice. All chickens are nice. Everybody's nice. All the yeah. animals are nice. So it doesn't matter if you know them. And then they're like, "Oh yeah, but he's got a name." Like, so what? What does that <laughs> change? You know? I find yep. people are so disconnected now. You know. Anyways, but yeah, I think God, that the kinda animals com- are there to bring us back to
1: Yeah. And I think that comes back to what we were talking about originally with like this understanding of the moon cycle in the, in the tide. Right. I mean, and I guess, you know, now thinking about it, like the tide is directly tied to the moon cycle because it's the gravity of the moon that pulls on the ocean that creates the tides. But, uh, again, like, I think it, it all comes back to this idea of like being tied in with, with nature and understanding where, you know, where your food comes, comes from and, Yeah, just really being tied back to nature as a whole.
0: Yeah, and this whole situation seems to be bringing back people a lot more to that. Here in Costa Rica, 50% of the national income is uh, linked to tourism. Now, I've met so many people that used to be guides, tourist guides, and they're like, yeah, no more tourists. Now, I'm a farmer and I started planting bananas and and all these things that I used to buy at the grocery store. So, that could be one positive thing about yeah. Plus, yeah, there's definitely. many more people that got pets, and shelters are empty. That's amazing. Who could, yes. who would believe that would happen? You know. <laughs> I know. Yeah.
1: But you know, the one thing in the one thing I worry about is like what I mean. I guess it's a worry, but in some regards, I don't know if it'll ever go back. You know, when I think about it, because we talk about this idea. Well, what what happens when the world go back goes back to normal? I don't know that we're ever going to go back to the way things were, right? I mean, I think a lot of businesses have been forced. <laughs> Even vet practices have been forced to learn how to get CSRs to be, or customer service representatives or front desk receptionists, whatever you want to call them, working from home to minimize the number of of staff within the building. And so even in a business where you're like, there's no way we can figure out a remote working situation, we've been forced to find ways to get people to do things from outside of the, the building. And so there's been this talk, well, yeah, you know, dogs are forever covid's only temporary but it's like yeah but i think a lot of businesses are realizing like why spend the money on this office space when we're doing everything without it um why do we need to have people go back so i'm not sure that it's gonna you know there i think there's some concern about people kind of abandoning these animals once they go having to go back to work but i'm not sure that that's no
0: no i think it's bringing a lot of value for people that did not know, they like, got often, I joke when, I pract- when I'm when i in practice at the clinic and I'm like, I have a patient, I have a cat that is there with his family and I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't help it. I have to share this with the, the family. Like, I poor people that don't have a cat. I don't know how they do it. You know? <laughs> see, it's bringing so much value and everything I see, every time I see one of those cats, I'm like, oh, I love cats, you know, and how can you live a life without having the joy? Of seeing this little animal with you, bringing you to the, to the moment and, and so on. And I mean, a cat is such little investment as far as time and money and so on compared to the joy it's bringing you. Like, Oh my God, those four people that don't have a pet. So I think the people that finally have find the time to, to adopt a pet, I think they will just see the value and get addicted. Like uh, all of us <laughs> Yeah, already have pets. Yeah.
1: So I know we've been talking a lot about pretty much a lot of plants and not a lot about, (laughs) a lot about the vet med space. But as we come down to the, our last few minutes together, I would, I just wanted to get your, you know, how do you go from being a practice veterinarian, you know, practicing vet med to now creating a, a, a euthanasia bag?
0: It's actually a body bag because some people think sometimes that you can Our perform euthanasia <laughs> with the bag. But it's about yeah, just, yeah, it's a good question. I've had this yeah. question asked so many times in the veterinary conferences. Yeah, it's actually uh where that's that's the million dollar question I get asked all the time and I love it. Um basically my answer is I calculated I did about five thousand euthanasia. Five thousand time I took care of a family, I took care of a pet, I ended his life. Uh, for most of the time, very good reasons. I've only had to perform, you know, maybe 10 convenience uh, euthanasia. But yeah, so then I would take so much care to do this, take care of the family, also of the pet. And then I would feel my value disruption when I had to hide and put the body of this beloved pet into a garbage bag. It was so shocking to me because it was so important. I'm so proud of what we do in VetMed. Just amazing. The level of commitment, the standard that we decide to to use. You know, we always want to give the best to these pets. And then suddenly it totally shifts and it's like garbage bag. That's all we found, you know. I'm like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. I got to find something. I looked online. I'm like, Okay. I need a better option because I can't keep on doing this because I don't want my clients to know what I'm doing. And this is not how I practice vet med. I'm proud of everything. You can watch me all the time. You can film, I can show everything, but that part. So I looked and all the options I could find were not, obviously not designed with people that were using them because they weren't opening on the right side. They were too fancy. They weren't like just medical supply. it was just like some kind of fancy bags uh so i'm like oh here is my idea because since i was very young my father was like yeah you should have a business so you can be free you can make a difference in people's life and he was always coming up with these crazy ideas and uh he got me to start selling ice cream when i was 11 years old he's like i want my daughter to just want to have a business <laughs> I was really into it so I started selling uh, popsicles and fudges um, in in parks when I was 11 then so when I saw that there was nothing on the market that made sense I'm like oh boy I got it I got it I got my idea for a business Then I'm like oh okay body bags not really exciting yeah kind of creepy so for about two three days I'm like yeah no I'm not sure like I want to do this thing about starting a business it's something like I want to know what it's about, just like being a vet, just like being a mother. But yeah. And then somehow I started falling in love with this topic and like, oh, well, but it's interesting because then it could make people feel better about the whole euthanasia. Then there would be something for the family, for the pet. And then for the vet teams, and like, oh my god, oh my god, and then it started growing, I'm like, oh my god, this is so amazing. And then I started looking again, I'm like, maybe I just missed, you know, that there's something out there. And I look everywhere. I even look, you know, in Japan in Japanese. I I translated body bag in Japanese, and maybe in Japan they have something. I'm like, no, nothing. Okay, uh, English, French, Italian. I'm like, nothing. Yeah. So then, <laughs> as a lot of vets, you know. I'm like, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, I'll just design this bag and I'll market it. No problem. I'll just get somebody to make it and I'll go to vet conferences and it's obvious people are going to buy the bag, you know. Just like, you know, you have a surgery sometimes. You haven't been taught how to do it. You've never seen it. But, you know, just go like, okay, I'll just grab a bag and I'll just do that surgery. No problem.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, yeah.
0: (laughs) It was a lot more than I expected to this, but I've, I made it.
1: Yeah, you so know, I can really how resonate how with that.
0: Just doing one same same old same old thing five thousand times, putting a beloved pet in a garbage bag. That gave me the idea. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's really refreshing because as somebody who has also found, a, you know, a gap in the veterinary market, that there's this massive issue of just overall data protection and cybersecurity within the vet space. And I'm like, oh, well, I see this problem, everybody's just going to jump on it, you know, and it. And then it's like, no, there's a big education piece. And even here, like you, like, I would think the same thing that it's just like, oh, yeah, obviously, right? Like, who wants to use a garbage bag? This is obviously such a, a better idea. That it would just catch on like wildfire. So I am relishing in your your challenges a little bit because it's just a little refreshing to know that like I'm not the only one who's had, you know going through this like education process.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're so focused in your own idea, and then uh, and then I was telling my friend that has been in the industry when I just started the process. I'm like, oh my god, I can't wait to go to these clinics and tell them about the product, and I don't see how they could say no. And she's like, no, Celine, that's not how it works. You're going to see most of them are going to say no, just because they're used to use that bag and they had to convince themselves that it's wonderful, not wonderful, but it's fine because everybody does it. So yeah, and it's, she was so right. And I tell her all the time, like, you were so right. But I must say that it's been going really fast. Although, you know, for sure, I thought everybody was going to order their uh, their starter kit as soon as they would hear from it. And it hasn't been like that, but it's been going really fast. We have thousands of, we, we just, uh, celebrated five years, uh, of, uh, existence this week or this month. That's but, awesome. Uh, yeah. Awesome. And I remember going to vet conferences at first and I met this guy that, uh, had created a software so you, we could have all of the treatments available on iPads for the, the hospitalized, um, a patients and you could have it on an ipad for all the vet text and then you could follow at home with the with the evolution of the case wasn't like oh wow this is so amazing and he told me yes we have 400 clinics using it i'm like oh, 400 400 clinics using it and i had maybe you know 250 or 300 u- clinics using my product it was really at the beginning and now i have, I have and i reached that 500 uh milestone and then i hit the thousand and the fifteen hundred and the two thousand and now we're up to i don't know over five thousand clinics for sure we have just just in canada we have a thousand clinics in the states i don't know because i work with distributors so i have no access to the data but yeah it's uh so it's going fast although as people in the in the vet industry know that can take a long time before they change their ways of doing things. Oh, this. yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> so true. Yes. Preaching to the choir on that one. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, man, it makes me want to get – I've never been to Costa Rica. So, you know, one day you might get a surprise visitor at your doorstep.
0: <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. We can spend hours looking at plants and bugs yes. and butterflies. And yeah, so much to yeah, discover.
1: It'd be amazing. So, um, just with this last minute or so, again, this is my second can question. Is there, you know, how can people find out more about what you're doing? How can they find out more about Youth Bag? You know, where can, uh, yeah, where, what do you want to promote?
0: I want to promote our brand new uh race-approved CE platform that we call Veterinary Euthanasia Practical Classes. Uh being a vet in practice for 20 years, uh having had no education around end of life or euthanasia or pre-euthanasia sedation, I had to learn the hard way, uh performing like Dr. Cooney's um Dr. Cooney's expression for that is a dysthanasia. Dr. Cooney is our guru in end of life. She's a key opinion leader in the States. So I had to perform bad euthanasia for many years. Just not bad, but not optimal, right? And then I want to share my tips that I've learned over the years uh, of practice and after going to international vet conferences and learning from the best uh, vets in, in end of life. So we put that all together in a program that is free and that is there to show that our product youth bag is not just a product not just a body bag it's also our mission is really to improve the whole euthanasia experience for everybody involved the pet the cuz we we uh, bring to practitioners new pre pre euthanasia sedation protocols so it's a pe- more peaceful ending also for the family cuz we um developed some tools for the, fa- for the vets to give to the families, such as key um, questionnaire on end of life, uh, on quality of life, questionnaires on quality of life, some nice poems, uh, how to bury a pet. Otherwise, sometimes families just leave with their pet in their hands, sometimes in a garbage bag, and they're just like, okay, I'm going to bury this pet. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know it's illegal. Uh, the vet doesn't tell them. The vet doesn't even know that, You know, he can be sued on a civil or criminal uh, level for letting a patient, uh, a client leave with a a pet that is contaminated with pentobarbital that could kill wildlife and so on. And also for the vet team, vet team are working so hard, they're at very high stress, and we bring them tools to make them feel better around euthanasia. Just the bag itself makes them feel more in line with the level of commitment they have. So this is our new thing. It's a six hour program that uh people can take and just with very practical tips they can use the next day and practice and feel better. I want to share them because they help me so much and I wanna be able to um to to, to share that with them. And on the so that's a uh, veterinary uh euthanasia.com. No, veterinary. Education veterinary euthanasia education dot com. I'll repeat veterinary education. No, again, I missed it. Veterinary Euthanasia Education dot com. And also our website is youthvag.com. And also on our website you have all the handouts that we developed that you can download. We all know that people in practice are too busy to develop these things. Yeah, that's basically what i'd like to share with my dear veterinary team colleagues
1: that's awesome yeah and i can speak uh i can definitely uh speak that D- dr kathy cooney is is amazing woman and she's here in colorado and I've, I've gotten to spend some time with her and she really is great so yeah well thank you so much selene it was amazing um enjoy costa rica i really appreciate the time and uh yeah i'd love to hopefully reconnect one day when uh, things aren't so crazy and maybe yeah. uh Maybe we'll share a coffee together one day.
0: For sure. Yeah. (laughs) I'm in. All right.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. um, And enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Thank you, Clint. Bye-bye. Bye.